Hello and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Lauren Council, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. Welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. My name is Remy Hamill. I'm a third-year dermatology resident at Washington University in St. Louis. It's my pleasure to interview today Dr. Esther Freeman regarding her involvement with the AAD COVID-19 registry and her recent JAD article titled Crowdsourcing Dermatology in the Age of COVID-19. Dr. Freeman is an assistant professor of dermatology at Harvard Medical School and director of global health dermatology at Massachusetts General Hospital. She is chair of clinical guidelines committee at the American Academy of Dermatology and a member of the AAD's task force on COVID-19. She oversees the International Dermatology COVID-19 Registry in collaboration with the American Academy of Dermatology, which will be the topic of our discussion today. Dr. Freeman, welcome. Thank you, Remy, I'm delighted to be here. The COVID-19 Dermatology Registry, as a reminder for everyone, can be found on the AAD website in the Coronavirus Resource Center. You can find it at aad.org forward slash COVID registry. And cases can be submitted in about five minutes by any healthcare provider in any country. It does not have to be a dermatologist. Patients, however, cannot enter data. Dr. Freeman, can you tell us a bit about the background of the registry and how you and the other collaborators came together? Sure. We started thinking about our registry pretty early on as we were hearing reports out of China. And interestingly, early on in the epidemic, and especially coming from China, we did not hear a lot about dermatologic manifestations of COVID-19 early in the epidemic. So initially, when we were starting to think about a registry, it was more from the perspective of existing dermatologic patients that we knew were on immunosuppressive medications, for example. And we were starting to think about how patients on immunosuppressive medications might respond to COVID-19 or how our existing dermatology patients who had pre-existent dermatologic conditions might respond to COVID-19. So at the time, we were starting to think about programming it that way. And we kind of, I wouldn't say as an afterthought, but almost as an afterthought, you know what, we should build it at the same time to capture any potential dermatologic manifestations of COVID-19. But the time we were building it, there really weren't any reported or like one or two reported in the literature. So we kind of built it a little bit on spec. And the week we were actually programming the database, I remember very distinctly, it was the week that all of these reports kind of started surfacing, not really officially in any literature, but just through kind of word of mouth or on social media, people reporting different lesions. So I've never had something, I run a lot of international databases and I've never had something I've had to reprogram so quickly. <laughs> uh, we were literally reprogramming it about every six hours because as every six to 12 hours, because a new dermatologic manifestation would pop up and we'd say, okay, we're going to put that one in too. So it was really changing very rapidly. So I will say that when we were initially conceptualizing the registry very, very early on, I think we thought we would be capturing data on pre-existing dermatologic conditions. And really what it has turned out to be is that the vast majority of our cases, probably about 90 to 95% of what is being entered into the registry is on patients who are developing dermatologic manifestations of COVID-19. 
So it really shifted very quickly. And, and honestly, within a week of launching, it became very clear that we were going to be focusing on dermatologic manifestations of COVID-19. But I will say when we, you know, when I initially pitched the idea to the AAD COVID-19 task force, we weren't really aware of these yet. So it shifted very quickly. That makes a lot of sense. When I was going through the registry, entering some practice cases, I didn't actually submit, but practicing going through it, you could see that the amount of thought as far as the question, and then it'll come up with a specific set of sub questions based on the question you answer, whether it was something you suspected to COVID or what the testing potentially was or what other medications or pre-existing conditions. So I can tell that like when you tell me that it had been many hours of reprogramming, I can tell that you put a lot of thought into the sequence of questions and the various sub questions that come out of that. With the different types of patient cases that can go in the registry, can you remind everyone, you'd mentioned there was the COVID suspected or confirmed, what types of cases are you looking for dermatologists and other healthcare professionals to submit to that registry? Absolutely. Well, we're really very broad. So this is a collaboration between the American Academy of Dermatology and the International League of Dermatologic Societies. And the amazing thing is that as our knowledge continues to evolve regarding this virus, we're continually capturing new symptoms and new information. So I would say most importantly is we're really not limited in the type of information we are collecting, but we are collecting information on a full range of dermatologic symptoms and dermatologic manifestations. So that could range anywhere from someone who has developed hair loss in the setting of COVID-19 to someone who is hospitalized, who has a thrombotic vasculopathy in the setting of COVID-19. So really a huge, what I would call a huge spectrum of different cutaneous manifestations. So that's one group of patients. Those are the patients who have developed cutaneous manifestations from COVID-19. We also have additional groups that can be entered into the registry. So those two groups are patients who have pre-existing dermatologic conditions. For example, if you were treating someone with uh, longstanding vasculitis, who then went on to develop COVID-19. We'd be interested to hear about what happened to that person's vasculitis. We also have patients who are on longstanding dermatologic medications, for example, immunosuppressives, whether that's methotrexate or biologics. And we're interested in what happens uh, to those patients when they develop COVID-19. So I think it's also important to note that we're collaborating across a number of different dermatology registries. I think the AAD and ILDS registry that we direct is the largest and also most broad. So we really collect everything, this full spectrum of dermatologic medications, full spectrum of patients who really experience any kind of pre-existing dermatologic condition. There are some disease-specific registries. Some examples are PSO Protect, which is for psoriasis. Another example is Secure AD, which is for atopic dermatitis. And another example is Secure Alopecia, which is for alopecia patients. And so we've actually coordinated a collaboration across these registries where you can let us know when you put in a case. For example, if you put a case into our registry of someone who has existing atopic dermatitis, you can actually let us know if you are additionally entering that case into the Secure AD platform as well. So there's certainly a lot of crosstalk between the different registries. And in fact, I just had a, a conversation with one of our uh, registry collaborators today. So we're literally in conversation a few times a week. And it was very elegant the way that all of that was linked. I noticed when I was 
doing the practice cases through the registry, if you entered psoriasis, it would ask you, did you submit or would you like to submit to that particular registry, et cetera. So it was very elegantly done. Thanks. Yeah, we worked really hard between the different registries to think about some of the issues are double data entry. So if you, we want to make sure we're not double counting cases. And I think also just making people aware of the different registries, I think is really important. It's been a, a really, for me, a silver lining of COVID is a chance to work with a lot of different collaborators that I haven't had a chance to work with before from different institutions, different countries, different specialties. That's really been a small positive for me in this otherwise very challenging time. Speaking of challenges, what have been some of the limitations or challenges that you've faced with the registry, specifically some of the reporting or other issues that you've struggled with and overcome? Yeah, I think that certainly in the very beginning, just the rapidity with which we needed to get the registry up and running. So from the moment that I pitched the registry idea to the American Academy of Dermatology Ad Hoc Task Force, I then pitched it to the International League of Derm Societies. And from that moment, going through ethical approval and IRB approval, going through the entire programming, and then going live to collecting our first patient was actually just eight days. So that was a really <laughs> very intense eight days, possibly one of the more intense eight days of my life. But I think just the sense of urgency that this is moving so very quickly and that we really needed to make this happen you know, very, very quickly for people and really on an international scale. I will say what's been incredible is just the amount of collaboration that people showed, I think, in breaking down barriers and the process that I know from my experience as an epidemiologist working in the global health sphere that a project like this would normally take me about six months to get off the ground. So six months to eight days is a very different timeline. Some additional challenges we've had, I think one is in interpretation of the data. I think there's the temptation to want to view this like a cohort study or like a population-based study. And this is not, this is a registry. And I think that was kind of one of my concerns as an epidemiologist very early on with, do we even want to set this up? Because I think it's tempting to say, when you look at the registry and you say, oh, you know, X number of cases of Pernio are PCR confirmed. People want to take that number and say, this means that of all Pernio cases, X number are PCR confirmed. And that is absolutely incorrect because we can only report on what people are entering in our registry. And there's certainly a lot of biases in what cases people will enter. People are probably more likely to enter cases that are lab confirmed. Um, that has shifted over time. In the beginning, we saw a lot of suspected cases with almost zero lab confirmed because to be honest, in the beginning, no one was getting COVID tested and that's shifted over time. Um, but there is this overall temptation to want to view this like a cohort study or population-based study. And I think it's really important to understand that limitation. That's a perfect segue. I wanted to discuss some of the articles that had come out of the registry, starting with one entitled Pernio-like Skin Lesions Associated with COVID-19, which was a case series of 318 patients. This was published in the August JAD. The data was from April 8th to May 2nd. And in it, as you mentioned, there were 505 patients reported. Of the 318 with the Pernio-like lesions, as you mentioned, there was a very low percentage, 7% were laboratory confirmed positive. And then you mentioned that with the increased testing, 
you are starting to see more, for example, in the next article we'll discuss, there were about 25% of laboratory confirmed cases. With the study from the initial data to the later data, has specific outcomes or, or things that you've noticed from the studies changed over time with the reporting and the testing? Yeah, that's a great question. I think our knowledge has on Pernio or quote unquote COVID toes has really continued to evolve. And I have to say, we are not at the end of that story yet. <laughs> um, there's still so much to be learned. And I think every day this virus teaches me something different. But there has been, I think, substantial development in our learning over time. In the very beginning, as, as we talked about, cases were mostly suspected because most of our patients, especially those with dermatologic manifestations that might have had otherwise mild disease, did not have access to testing. They did not meet any of the testing criteria, and so they were not able to get tested. So most of our cases in the beginning were suspected, and it was only as testing criteria started to change and relax a little bit that we were starting to get more lab-confirmed cases. I think something that's really important to highlight that in terms of our interpretation of lab-confirmed cases, and in particular in relation to Pernio, but in relation to all of skin symptoms, is to really think about timing of testing. So I think what's really important is when are the tests done? And so what you have to interpret with a positive or a negative test is in that moment. So for example, if someone is nasal PCR swabbed positive with Pernio, you know, there is the chance that person is still infectious. And so our job is to identify that person and potentially stop them from spreading it to another individual. If they are PCR swabbed negative, it doesn't mean they didn't have COVID. And that's very challenging. Mm -hmm. So much goes into that. When were they tested? What kind of test? At what window? We know that many of our Pernio patients, for example, are actually developing Pernio substantially after their initial COVID infection, sometimes two weeks later, sometimes four weeks later, well after you're in your period of PCR positivity. So we would almost expect you to be PCR negative. I think adding to some of these challenges is in terms of our interpretation of negative tests are some of these really interesting newer papers that have come out. And so two in particular that's not written by me that I would love to highlight that I think are really particularly interesting one is by Colmenero et al., which was published in the BJD in the British Journal of Dermatology, titled SARS-CoV-2 Endothelial Infection Causes COVID-19 Chilblains. And that paper highlighted that patients were PCR negative, so nasal swab negative, but actually identified SARS-CoV-2 in their toes when they were PCR negative. And that was a series of, of cases that I think is really instrumental to our understanding of this viral process. And I think also really speaks to this process where I think there's been a lot of buzz in the literature about could this actually be a epiphenomenon? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think when you see direct evidence of SARS-CoV-2 sitting in someone's toe, that you can even look at a picture of it on electron microscopy, I think that's, to me, very, very convincing evidence. I think the other paper I wanted to highlight, uh, which was recently published by Jimmy Olkowski et al., which was published in The Lancet, which was titled SARS-CoV-2 PCR Testing of Skin for COVID-19 Diagnostics. It's also a really critical piece. That was looking at a, a non-perneal case, but it was a patient who was PCR nasal swab negative, antibody test negative, but their skin biopsy was positive on PCR. 
So my point in bringing these up is that a negative test cannot be taken at face value to mean that person did not have COVID-19. There's so many different factors that go into it and particular timing of testing matters. So we did change in our registry a lot of the way that we collect data on testing to reflect in particular the importance of capturing that timing information. When was the PCR test done? When was the antibody test done? Because when I tell you, when we originally programmed the database, it was definitely not in there. I wanted to ask a little bit also about the reporting. Initially, from the study we were just talking about, your your study that came out of the registry, about 90% of the patients were white, about 90% from the United States. And then in the subsequent article, which was published in the JAD, still published online ahead of print that had data, again, from a slightly larger time period, the about 90% was still United States, but about 67% white. Have you seen an increase in the number of reporting from other countries as you link with some of these other international organizations? How has that evolved over time? Yeah, I think I certainly credit our collaboration with the International League of Derm Societies in terms of being able to get the word out internationally to include our international colleagues in reporting cases, because I do think it's so important to understand differences across different countries and and different. I think also what's been fascinating to me is in, in many ways the similarities of the cases that we're seeing in different countries. I think in particular, the issue regarding race and ethnicity in the database is hugely important. And this is something that we've been struggling with from day one, because we knew very early on that many of our Black communities in the United States, for example, were getting really hard hit by COVID-19, but that we were not seeing those reports necessarily in the COVID-19 dermatology registry. And I can speak from personal experience in Boston, our hotspot in Boston is an area called Chelsea, which is substantially Latino population that was really getting very hard hit, but we were not seeing a lot of cases in our Latino population being reported in the registry. So I think trying to unpack that is a very complicated issue because I think we're not just seeing it in the dermatology registry. I think we're seeing it in reports from lots of other fields as well in terms of COVID-19. We very early on involved Samil Desai, who is the immediate past president of the Skin of Color Society, um, in our work just because we felt that it was so important. He's really done a wonderful job in terms of trying to advocate for more diversity. And I just recently had a, a great conversation with Susan Taylor on this as well. How do we try to include more diversity? As I said, I think it is definitely a complex issue. I don't think it's just one reason. I think that there may be a non-recognition of skin symptoms in patients with darker skin tones, and that may be happening at the level of the provider. Keep in mind, only about half of our cases entered are by dermatologists, so these are also non-dermatologist providers. So I think there may be a non-recognition of skin symptoms or skin signs in by providers. On the patient side, as we know, there's not a lot of COVID-19 dermatology images in darker skin tones. So patients themselves maybe are not seeing representative images that look like them. So that might influence. I think also we know that access to dermatologic care is not universal and that folks in lower resource settings may not have good access 
to dermatologic care. And that is also going to affect what we're seeing reported in the registry um, if people aren't really able to access the care for their skin findings. Um, people may have also been very discouraged from coming into the doctor in communities that were particularly hard hit by COVID-19 just because of the danger or the perceived risk in doing so. And then there's the concept of structural racism contributing as well, and not to underplay the contribution of that. So I think it's a very complex issue. We've been working very hard really from day one to try to make sure that there's a diverse voice in the cases that are represented. But I think this is a continued challenge and one that we're going to continue to work on uh, with the registry. I think it's, it's a really important issue. I thought it was really interesting, the decision to incorporate all providers, not just dermatologists. And when you explain as far as reaching into the communities where almost certainly there's less dermatologists really opens it up to multiple providers being able to report those symptoms to try and capture a more diverse data set. I also thought it was really interesting in one of the articles you mentioned that a subgroup analysis comparing the dermatologists showed similar distribution to the other providers as far as the reported skin manifestations, potentially suggesting that there's a, a concordance of recognizing the various skin findings. Is that something that has been true in the reporting as we've gone forward with increased reporting between dermatologists and, and these other groups? Yeah, I think it was very important to include non-dermatologists in the registry because especially early on in the epidemic when many of our offices are closed, we knew that, you know, at least certainly in the U.S., we knew that most of the patients with COVID-19 weren't being seen by dermatologists. And so if we limit it to just dermatologists, we were going to be probably seeing just the tip of the iceberg in terms of dermatologic manifestations. One thing we've learned over time is that there is a pretty big difference between the dermatologic manifestations seen in the outpatient setting in COVID-19 and the dermatologic manifestations seen in the inpatient setting in COVID-19, and that these different dermatologic manifestations travel with different severities of disease. And that was actually one thing I wanted to mention in terms of your prior question of how has our knowledge evolved? I think that is a huge piece that's evolved for me. I remember early on in the epidemic, some of our inpatient consult services saying, I don't know what you're talking about with this pernia. I've seen zero cases of pernio in the inpatient setting, on the inpatient hospital ward. Um, I remember having a great discussion with Joanna Harp on this. She was very active in New York doing a lot of the inpatient consults early on in the epidemic. And for me, in contrast, sitting at Mass General in the outpatient setting, I think my biggest day was I saw almost 20 cases of pernio in one day. Wow. Um, at Boston's peak in terms of the COVID-19 epidemic. So it was very different. And I think what's been interesting is watching those personal experiences play out in the data, because now we see, and I think there is a really nice figure that I can't take credit for in one of our papers that Joanna Harp helped us with that shows the spectrum of disease severity of COVID-19 related to different dermatologic manifestations. So on one end, we have pernio which is actually seems to be occurring in patients who have very mild disease. I think only about 16% were hospitalized. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have patients with retiform purpura. And those patients, 100% of those were hospitalized and many, many were in ARDS. So I think it's been really interesting watching our knowledge evolve about the severity of symptoms. So in terms of non-dermatologists entering data, about half of our 
data has been entered by non-dermatologists, which I think really underscores the importance of including that population. I think it is a fair question of how accurate are the dermatologic descriptions or diagnoses that are being entered by non-dermatologists as compared to dermatologists. I am somewhat reassured, as you said, that the distribution of dermatologic conditions is similar across dermatologists and non-dermatologists. And one way we kind of dealt with this at the study design phase was we actually reached out to colleagues at Visual DX and asked them if they would be willing to share images, um, representative images. At the time, these were not in COVID-19 because we didn't have any images in COVID-19, but represented more representative morphologic images. So you'll notice if you do go in to enter a case in the COVID-19 dermatology registry and you select, for example, urticaria, there's a picture there that would help you with what does urticaria look like. And we did try to include multiple different skin tones in our examples on the registry. And that really was put in there not so much to help dermatologists, um, who I think have a very good sense of what urticaria looks like, but to help non-dermatologists when they are entering cases to give them a sense of when we say urticaria or we say retiform purpura, what do we mean? I wanted to ask now about updates on the current data in the registry or upcoming projects. How do you see this data set being used by yourself and others going forward? Yeah, I think it's been really important to me to recognize from the very beginning that this data does not belong to any one institution or any one group of investigators. This is a data set that's really important to the field of dermatology and just in COVID-19 in general overall. From the very beginning, we decided that we would be opening the database to analysis from outside uh, where people could request the data. Um, and could do other analyses on the data. So that's a process that we've been building over time. I will admit it's taken longer than I thought in terms of building this process. Uh, in retrospect, it makes sense that it would take a while. We actually have established an international scientific advisory board that is going to be overseeing the registry and the data request process. And we've really tried to make this as transparent as possible. We've modeled the entire process of data requests on the NIH, on the National Institute of Health, which has a very similar data request process um, that I'm familiar with with my work in HIV. I'm part of a very large HIV international consortium where the data is handled centrally through the NIH and different investigators can put in applications to do certain analyses. So we've modeled our data request process on that NIH process with the idea being that if you have a, a particular research question that you'd like answered, you can put in an application to our scientific advisory board. The scientific advisory board will review the application and then release specific data after you've gone through a certain IRB process and potentially a data use agreement as well. So it's not a, a super fast process, but we are really pleased that we're going to be able to really share this data with investigators around the world that have research questions that need further exploring. Thank you so much. We've talked about a lot of different things. We talked about the registry, who can be entered. Again, patients with COVID-19, either confirmed or suspected, can be entered. Patients with existing dermatologic conditions who subsequently develop COVID-19 or patients on existing dermatologic medications who develop COVID-19 can be entered. Dermatologists can enter it. Other healthcare providers can enter it. So please, if you have any data, please consider entering it into the registry, which again can be found at the AAD website in the Coronavirus Resource Center, aad.org forward slash COVID registry. 
and you can contact covidregistry at aad.org should you have any additional questions. Are there any additional thoughts or points that we haven't discussed yet, Dr. Freeman, that you'd like to leave the listeners with? Yeah, absolutely. Just to add to your plea to please continue to enter cases. I think there's a sense that, oh, we already know a lot about COVID-19 dermatology. And and I think we're honestly still at the tip of the iceberg. Not a day goes by that I don't learn something new about COVID-19 and and how it's affecting the skin and how it's affecting our dermatology patients. Now we're starting to see reports, for example, of telogen effluvium um, in patients who have had COVID-19. We're starting to see different seasonal and geographic variations possible temperature variations and how people are developing different COVID-19 symptoms. And we're certainly understanding a lot more about COVID-19 test timing, both in terms of PCR timing and in terms of antibody timing. So I would say even if you have a case now in your practice or you've heard of a case that you think, oh, this has already been published in the literature, we actually still want you to enter the case because there's a lot of valuable data in there that we're learning about in terms of timing of symptoms, timing of testing, um, that's really incredibly helpful in our interpretation of COVID-19 dermatology. So I just wanted to say a big thanks to those of you that have taken the time to enter cases. And I know it's a, a lot of effort and sometimes you get repeat emails from us asking additional questions. And we're really so appreciative of dermatologists and non-dermatologists around the globe that have contributed to our knowledge on this topic. Dr. Freeman, thank you again so much for talking with me and thank you all listeners for Dialogues in Dermatology. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Remy. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Lauren Council, your Editor-in-Chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. You can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app. New podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcast. We hope you enjoyed these new options for listening to dialogues and the increased content for your listening pleasure. Thank you.